Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Doig about the new book, This Mortal Coil, A History of Death. This Mortal Coil is a thrilling story of growing medical knowledge and social organization of achievement and looking to the future of promise. University of Manchester Professor Andrew Doig provides us with an eye-opening portrait of death throughout history, looking at particular causes, from infectious disease to genetic disease, violence to diet, who they affected, and the people who made it possible to overcome them. Well, Andrew, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Galena. Thanks for inviting me. So how are you? How was your week? Oh, very good. Yep. Just finishing teaching at the University of Manchester, ending the teaching week, getting into examining and um, running, which is what I like to do. I took part in a 55 mile relay race over the weekend, which was a really great event. So can you tell us what do you do? I'm a professor of biochemistry at the University of Manchester in England. And how did you get interested in studying biochemistry or science in general? Um, well, well it always, it always been interested in science from school. It was what I was best at, so, so I followed naturally. When I, I wanted to do physics when I was 14, so I picked my last two subjects at high school. The last two years, two years at high school, I picked subjects like physics, maths and chemistry. No biology at all, actually. And then I went to the University of Cambridge and... Luckily, the way they teach science in Cambridge is very general. So rather studying a single subject like chemistry or physics, you have to do natural science and study a broad range of subjects. So I did a cell biology course in the first year, along with chemistry and geology, um, not having studied biology for a few years. And I found that cell biology was absolutely fascinating. Uh, though I stick, stuck with my main degree of chemistry, but I always followed mixture of chemistry, biochemistry, biology, and so on. And I've always done that. I've always been interested in kind of the border between uh, chemistry and biology, which is biochemistry, really. And along your career journey, were there mentors or colleagues that really supportive of you? Well, after I finished my degree in natural science in Cambridge. I stayed on in the chemistry department and did a PhD with uh, Professor Dudley Williams. So he was my first research mentor. 
And then after that, I went to Department of Biochemistry at Stanford Medical School in California. And my supervisor there was uh, Professor Buzz Baldwin. And what I really liked about both of them was the freedom that they gave me. So they gave me, both gave me projects, but they were both very happy for me to pursue my own interests. And I could go along with them and say, yes, I've been doing what you've told me to, but how about, have a look at this? How about this idea? And uh, I was fortunate enough to, that um, they were, they would let me uh, pursue my own interests. So that was, um, that was really good for me. And I and always think this is really important to be able to pursue uh, what interests you and not being really restricted to doing something because that's exactly what your job is or you've got an exam precisely on that or this is your subject and, and so on. That's what I really believe in is just following your interests where, where things take you. Excellent. So your latest book is This Mortal Coil, A History of Death. So can yep. you tell us how did you come to writing it? This, well, it's a combination of science and history plus many other things. Um, religion, philosophy, medicine, engineering, politics, statistics. This is stuff, honestly, some of this stuff I've been thinking about for 40 years. I only started writing it in 2018. Um, I mean, what really caught, first caught my interest was when I was um, a teenager, I watched this fantastic uh, science program by Carl Sagan called Contact, and he was an astronomer. He was involved with some of the um, Voyager space probes that went to look at the outer planets and things like that. And he, he wrote a great book to go along with, with um, his TV series, Con uh, sorry, he made it a, a, a series called Cosmos, about TV series, which is about science. And he wrote an accompanying book. But what was really great about it was that it wasn't just about science. He brought in a lot of other stuff as well. There was a lot, lot of stuff about history of science and showed where these ideas came from, going back to ancient Greeks and people like Johannes Kepler 400 years ago and so on. So this was kind of a, I really liked his approach of the mix of science and history, and that stuck with me. And there was one small thing that he just mentioned that planted the whole seeds for, for this book, which was thing called the, the bills of mortality. So let me explain what the bills of mortality were. They were the first records that we, that we had, certainly um, in England, of causes of death, what people died from. So in 1592, a uh, plague came to London. Again, it had been knocking around for a few hundred years. And the Lord Mayor of London decided that he want to, wanted to keep track of the number of people who were dying from plague. Uh, so what he did was that he uh, created this new job with people called searchers of the dead. And these were um, elderly women. They were generally widows. And it was their job, whenever anybody died, was to go around and inspect the course, the corpse and record what the cause of death was. So first of all, it was initially whether they died of plague or whether they died from something else. But then later they started recording um, exactly what they thought the cause of death was. And the reason they did this was to track plague outbreaks. So when they knew there was a, a new um, epidemic coming along, and if, if the number of plague victims was growing too quickly, they could take measures to stop it, like they would close the theatres so that 
because um, that was a, uh, in the crowds at theatres the disease could spread, for instance. And they recorded some um, really strange sounding causes of death in these bills of mortality. So there were some we would recognise infectious diseases like consumption, which is tuberculosis, fever, which is any kind of infectious disease. And some of them were just really strange. You could you could die by being distracted, apparently. Um, causes of death would be sinking of the spirits or rising of the lights. And one cause of death was planet. And this is the one that Carl Sagan picked up on. So he said, hundreds of years ago, apparently people could die from planet. And what this meant is that they died by astrology. So they died because they were a Taurus and Jupiter was in Virgo or something like that. And this was in the Bills of Mortality. And this is what Carl Sagan wrote about. This is what I wondered. And Carl Sagan wrote, people were dying of planet. I wonder what the symptoms were. And I wondered what that was too. And I looked into the bills of mortality, and the thing that struck me was what people were apparently dying from 400 years ago were completely different to what people die from now. So they were dying of these, these strange things. Um, many children, very young children, were dying, a lot of infectious disease, but nobody seemed to die from a heart attack. Cancer was very, very rare. Nobody had a stroke. Nobody had dementia. And so the question I really wanted to answer was, what on earth is going on? So how could the causes of death have changed so much in the last 400 years? So that's that's really the question that I set out to answer. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> I wonder if those people were starstruck, maybe? <laughs> I honestly, I'd, I would have said, Carl Sagan asked the question, I wonder, he said, I wonder what the symptoms were. I really, honestly, I don't know. And some of this is, is still a mystery. The, this is the diagnosis by the searchers was that they died of, uh, of planet or something like that. And we really don't know what this, what this meant. Okay, so let's dive into the book. So can we start with the very basics and perhaps the easiest question, what exactly is death? I'm not sure if that's an easy question. Um, you want a simple definition, it would be irreversible ending of brain activity. But there's a grey area there because you can have parts of the brain that are irreversibly inactive, dead, not working anymore, where you can have other parts of the brain that are still working. So you can be in a persistent vegetative state, from, for example, where your basic bodily functions like your heartbeat and breathing and digestion are still working, but you'll never be able to um, achieve consciousness again. So there's a gray area there about whether you, you call somebody dead. And the, but the main definition we use these days is looking at the brainstem. So it's the brainstem that does these basic fundamental uh, bodily activities that, that ensures your heart is, is still going. So if you have a functional brainstem, then you could say somebody is still alive. But you can argue if, uh, you know, if they've lost so much of the brain that they'll, they'll never wake up, they're as good as dead, um, in one opinion. But opinion, and um, what we call death has varied in the past as well. I mean, it used to, we used to look at breathing. And if somebody had stopped breathing, um, we said they were dead. And this is, you can recover from that. Of course, as you know, you can do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and, and bring somebody back even though they've stopped breathing. So many people were thought to be dead in the past. Um, 
and they came back. So that's not a good definition. But that's what we use uh, today. And more on the biochemical level. So what do we know what's happening in our cells? Um, well, when, how do cells die? Uh, well, two, two mechanisms we call necrosis and apoptosis. Um, cells dying is uh, an important part of biological activity. Um, many, if not most of our cells have a finite lifetime and they need to die in the end and be broken down. So our red blood cells, for example, might last a few months, then they get degraded. Or if a cell has DNA damage and it, uh, is it potentially may become cancerous, then systems get switched on where that cell deliberately dies. And this is called apoptosis. This is programmed cell death. Um, it's used in development as well. So we look at our hand, we have um, fingers and we have, there's no tissue in between the fingers, but in embryonic development, there was, um, there was tissue between our, our fingers and apoptosis had to ha uh, happen to the cells that are in between our fingers and all that all those cells died to leave us our fingers. And if, the, if this is incomplete, then you're left with webbing between your fingers or your toes. And occasionally some people are, are born like this. So this is deliberate um, cell death that is meant to happen. That's apoptosis. Necrosis is more drastic. And this is when things go seriously wrong and the membranes um, on the outside of the cell might dissolve and the cell bursts open or something like that. So severe injury or disease or something that might cause this more serious process of necrosis, where all the contents of the cell might spill out in an uncontrolled way and cause problems. So that's death at cellular level in our bodies. And now coming back to the organismal level. So as a human species, how did we start recognizing death as a part, like as a really integral part of life? Um, we know that um, our cousins, Neanderthals, um, buried their dead. Um, they didn't, when somebody died, they, they understood something had happened. They prepared graves and, and buried the bodies. And we think they may have been buried, buried them with, with goods, um, like put flowers on the body and things like this. Um, so they, it's, it's pretty clear they had an understanding of death that's probably not too dissimilar from our, our own. So, and this is before Homo sapiens or contemporaries to it. So we've understood death and we've had funeral rites for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, that's for sure. Now going to the uh, more of written history or recorded history, so how did we think and deal with death in the early, uh, earlier years? Um, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what you mean, but think and deal, deal with it. I don't know if I could answer that question. So, for example, were there specific rituals that were really specific for, for burials or for dying? And how were the people who were died revered? Um, I think this is all part of being human and all cultures would have um, had funeral rites and revered people and so on. Tombs and monuments are as old as civilization when we started li living in cities. It's just 
part of the human condition, I think. And then going to causes. So what do we know about how the causes started to change in those early days? Oh, before I answer that, something in the previous question, the oldest story that we know of is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that comes from Mesopotamia, from a city called Uruk. And this story is maybe at least 4,000 years old. And interestingly, it's about, it's about death. It, uh, Gilgamesh is, is the great king of Uruk, and it's about his quest for immortality. So the very first story that we have recorded is on the topic of death. So that's what I mean by uh, it's as, as, as old as we are. That's a really important, isn't it, uh, sort of concept? <laughs> so it has the story of um, a story that we recognize as the Great Flood and Noah, for example, is in um, the Epic of Gilgamesh because he goes to find Noah. I think he's... I think he's the old, the oldest man around, or something like that. And anyway, um, goes to talk to him in his quest for, for immortality. So and this was, uh, you know, a thousand, at least a thousand years before the story was written in the Book of Genesis yeah, in our Bible, and it may have been a source for it. Sorry, the second question you were asking about um, the oldest, what were our causes of death in, in the distant past? Is that right? Yeah, so how did people used to die? Was it mainly from accidents or malnutrition, for example? Mm -hmm. Right, well, most of our history, um, we weren't living in cities. Uh, we weren't farming. We were hunter-gatherers. We were probably nomadic, uh, collecting food, hunting animals, living in that way. And if you, we look at the skeletons of these people, we can get some idea of how they lived and how they died. So first of all, they were um, tall and they seemed to be healthy. So a basic measure of human health, the, the, the easiest one to do is simply people's height. And if people are tall, that's an indication that they're well nourished, particularly in childhood. And when we went to start agriculture, people got a lot smaller. And um, Famine probably became, became more likely. There was more malnutrition. Uh, people were perhaps not getting enough calories, going through episodes of, of um, lack of food and not having a good balanced diet, vitamin deficiencies and things like this. And this is probably because they they were farming just a few staple crops um, and the diet was much more varied uh, when we were hunter-gatherers. So farming was bad for human health. What we... The other thing we noticed from the skeletons, though, is it was a very violent world. So you might imagine hunting wild animals is a dangerous activity, and I'm sure it is. Um, but we see many of these skeletons from the distant past have clear evidence of uh, severe wounds that are undoubtedly inflicted by other people. We could even see um, arrowheads embedded in bones and things like this. Uh, so it was a violent world for most of our human history. And perhaps one in six people died. Um, they were murdered. They were killed by, by somebody else. And if we look at um, hunter-gatherers in more closer to the present day, again, they're, they're much more, more violent. So when we started living in cities, it was uh, bad for health in terms of what we were eating. But 
there was much more law and order. There were systems of justice. There was a king or another ruler who was maintaining law of law and order, and and cutting out the violence. So that was one of the benefits of living in cities. And another thing I think that was uh, beneficial about living cities in cities was that wars went on, but they tended to be may well have been professional soldiers who did the fighting for you. So if you were in um, a hunter-gatherer band and you were um, in conflict with another band, probably uh, all the men in the band would have to take up a weapon and, and engage in the fighting. Whereas if you're in a state and they had professional soldiers with armour and horses and weapons which they were trained to use, that was just a small number of people who did the fighting. And, and the common peasants who were working in the field just weren't involved in wars um, so much. So how did those um, um, sort of ways that people tended to die started to change, especially as you mentioned, as people started to settle and living in the bigger communities? Right. So the other catch, apart from malnutrition and living cities, is that it led to the rise of infectious disease. Um, so up until 100 years ago, um, once we started living in cities until 100 years ago, infectious disease was, was the main killer. And there's several reasons for this. Um, one is if you have 10,000 people all living close together, it's easy for disease to spread from one person to another. Uh, sanitation became much more of a problem. Uh, the water, so people were sharing the same water supply using rivers and streams, which would be polluted with human waste and food waste and so on. And it could be dirty from, from the uh, people living upstream as well. But the biggest problem is that we picked up lots of new diseases when we started living in cities. And most diseases we catch from animals. Uh, so you can get influenza from chickens and you can get measles um, from cows or from horses um, and so on. So when we're farming animals, we're living in close proximity to these animals, then viruses and bacteria living in them would jump across to our species and create new um, epidemics. And this became the main cause of death. And because the population density was so high, these diseases would continue to live on within the population. And these are like childhood diseases, which we're used, used to today. So young children, you know, we expect them to get things like chickenpox. And these, all these viruses that you pick up um, when you're very small, and you only pick them up because there's, there's millions of people all with the virus already to infect. If you're hunter-gatherers, the population density was extremely low. And if a disease did jump from an animal to a person, it might kill all the people in the band, but then that would be the end of it. All the people were dead and it wouldn't spread. So infectious disease became the leading killer. Um, and bodies that are mal malnourished, as I said, they, they tended to get smaller. They would have less ability to fight off disease as well. So dying at random ages, um, or particularly as very young babies from in infectious disease, that became the normal way to die once we were living in cities. And life expectancy, I mean, in, in, in ancient Rome, 2000 years ago, life expectancy was probably didn't even reach 30. And there was only a 50% chance that you would um, reach the age of five. It's, it was, it was uh, so many uh, babies were picking up diseases 
um, and dying. They had no resistance and, and no way of treating them. And that was the normal condition until late 19th century. So death itself is a sort of really important factor in medical sciences, biological sciences. So what kind of discoveries did the death sort of help us uh, to develop? You were talking about infectious diseases, for example. Um, well, I think the thing with infectious diseases is we did understand for a long time the importance of contagion. You knew if somebody was ill, you could, um, and you went near them, there was a risk you could, you could catch it themselves. So even, um, you know, the time of the plague, maybe 700 years ago, uh, seaports like um, Venice and Pisa and Marseille, they would set up quarantine systems. So if a plague um, ship was coming in or a ship suspected of carrying plague, then they would be forced to stay offshore for 40 days, which is where the word quarantine comes from, Italian for 40. But that was about all they could do. So they understood that it was contagious, um, but they had no idea about the cause of death. And it was only really when you investigate the causes of disease that you can do something about it. So once you realize that it's mosquitoes that are spreading malaria, then that's something we can deal with. We can stop mosquitoes breeding and drain the swamps and, and, and things like that. The biggest breakthrough to dealing with infectious diseases here was understanding the cause, and this is germ theory. So this was people like uh, Robert Koch from Germany and Louis Pasteur um, from France. In the late 19th century, we finally realized that these tiny microorganisms are the things that spread disease. And once you've identified the thing that causes the disease, then you can search for a way to kill it. And then you can finally have um, proper cures. So germ theory was that was the and, and the whole entire importance of microbiology and studying bacteria and viruses. Um, came out, it was, it was really driven by idea, um, way to deal uh, with, in, with infectious disease. And how do genetics contribute uh, to death? So even thinking about the earlier studies, for example, on the blood groups and blood transfusion, how, how did that play out? Well, people have known, of course, it's, it's obvious that uh, people resemble their parents, um, so there's clearly genetics uh, going on, and, and they were sort of vague. They must have noticed that uh, diseases would tend to run in families. Sometimes this this is uh, really obvious, but we had no idea. Again, we had no idea really why until the 19th century, where people like Mendel started to understand the concepts of the gene. And we have two copies of each gene in our in our bodies, and you can. Uh, if you alter the one particular gene, this, this can um, lead to disease. So blood groups is, an, is a nice example of this, where we have two copies of a particular protein and the gene can be O, A or B and these determine uh, which, which blood groups that we have. So that, that's a nice example. And that was um, around about 1900 from studies on, on trying to do blood transfusions on um, dogs and seeing which ones were compatible. And some genetic diseases, the genetics are really simple. So Huntington's disease, for example, is, is uh, what we call dominant. And the genetics works on a simple pattern is if you have Huntington's disease and you have a child, there is a 50-50 chance that you pass it on um, to that child. 
so that works very simply. Um, but most diseases are what we call polygenic. So the likelihood of you getting um, a cancer, for example, uh, is affected by your genes, but it's probably affected by thousands of genes. And, the, and these um, variations, tiny variations, all have a very small effect on whether you'll get cancer. Um, so you, if one of your parents has cancer, well, you probably are a bit more likely to have it yourself, but it's immensely complicated and it's by no means um, a certainty that if it runs in your family, you'll get it too. So people would notice things like that. Um, but we didn't really understand physically what, what was actually going on until we started to use microscopy and we could see that these genes existed on things called chromosomes. So our DNA is packaged into um, these uh, sm small bodies, 46 different chromosomes in each cell, and they come in pairs. And this was a nice physical explanation of where these genes were. So we, so if your gene was on chromosome number three, you'd have two copies of chromosome number three. And uh, this variation in these genes would, would affect the likelihood of um, uh, getting particular diseases. And then certain diseases, that what's really obvious before we could sequence DNA, is that if there was a really substantial change to a chromosome, we could actually see them, the, the chromosome was different down the microscope. So if one chromosome was shorter, for example, then, then the child might be born with a genetic disease. So now we, we could start to see something physical related uh, to the particular disease. And this was the indication that the, all this kind of evidence showed that it's the genetic material, which we now understand to be DNA, is located um, on the chromosomes. Uh, but the real revolution in genetics is when we start the ability to actually sequence the DNA and see precisely what, it, what the differences are, what exactly the mutation is, what exactly the, the one, uh, what change in the DNA leads to somebody getting Huntington's disease or something like that. So there's a, now, of course, the, the amount of genetic information we're getting is absolutely staggering. And we have a, a fantastic understanding right down the precise level of, of uh, how variations in, in DNA lead to different likelihoods of uh, getting particular disease. So this leads me nicely to my next question. So what kind of causes do we have nowadays? Um, right, so as I said, once we understood the cause of infectious disease, which is generally germs, we could identify the germ and then we try to find a way to kill it. And we take it for granted that we expect when we get a disease, we'll go to the doctor and the doctor will write a prescription and we'll get a drug. Um, and we expect there, it's kind of assumed that there'll be some kind of drug which will help us fight off this disease. And we take this for granted, but th this whole idea of uh, artificial chemicals curing diseases, this is barely more than 100, 100 years old, this idea. And it's an absolutely brilliant idea. Um, because what, uh, what we started to do 100 years ago was once we found the particular organism that, that caused the drug, it was then we could try and find chemicals which would kill that organism, kill that bacteria and kill that virus, but not harm us. And this is the idea of a magic bullet. So drugs are magic bullets. So they're deadly. to, to they'll kill one particular thing, which is the, the virus that causes the disease, and it'll leave human cells entirely untouched. And this is what, what drugs are. And when we, so drug discovery has led to um, 
dealing, uh, wiping out many infectious diseases. So where are we now? So infectious disease has, has dropped to less than 10% of deaths um, in the modern world are from infectious disease. Now, something has taken its place. Life expectancy has soared. It's now above um, world life expectancy is now 74. It's more than 75 in places as diverse as Indonesia, China, Brazil, and the Western world. Life expectancy is above 70 in India now. Um, in Africa, it's um, sub-Saharan Africa, it's risen, it's up to 62 now. And in all these places, infectious disease is in, is in steep decline or unimportant. So, we design, so we're dying from cardiovascular problems, heart attack, stroke, cancer, dementia. So they're not infectious, lifestyle diseases, and these are the kind of things that happen to our bodies uh, with the way we live today. And if we live to be 60, 70, 80, um, or so on. So it's again, this this is this is what interests me in the book is the, the complete change in um, why we die and massive change in causes of death and, uh, and and why that happened. And is it also accompanied by the way we think about death and even prolonging life, perhaps? Uh, what do you mean? So nowadays, for example, you can have technology to assist uh, with the artificial breathing, for example, to keep person alive. So did that change somehow kind of for us uh, to think about, to allow people to die? Um, I'm sure, um, well, we, if somebody dies before... 70 or 60 or something like that we think it's shocking and it, and it and it shouldn't happen and something's gone really really wrong but this used to be the norm people would have five eight ten or more children because they knew they would they would lose so many of them so this so um it was much more of a part of life now Death is something that we think it only happens to the elderly and it generally doesn't happen in the home, it happens in a hospital. So I think that's uh, really different. And what roles uh, do social factors play in how we tend to die nowadays? Well, I haven't really talked about this, but... Uh, Changes in the cause of death. I've really talked about medicine so far, but um, one thing that really struck me researching this is how useless medicine was really until the 20th century. Um, so in Britain, for example, life, life expectancy in the Middle Ages was about, around about 30. And again, that's because not because people died, all died at 30, it's because many children died people dying randomly of infectious disease. But by late Victorian times, life expectancy had got up to 55, um, which is really good. Um, but this wasn't due to medicine being wonderful. As I said, we didn't have drugs then. Um, it was social factors that, that had improved um, our lives. So, for example, by that time, we understood the importance of sanitation. It had been clearly demonstrated that some of these deadly germs lived in the water. And it was crucial to provide clean water for people to drink, 
Um, it was crucial to provide water to um, wash clothes in because now we knew that all of these uh, germs that spread disease could live in water, even if the water tasted fine and looked good. So sanitation was absolutely crucial, disposing of sewage and things like this. So this was, as I said, understanding the cause of disease is really crucial. Then we could do something about it. And the solution there was engineering. So Victorians built sewage systems and, and they were able to provide uh, clean water, reservoirs, good drinking water, um, rather than using the river. So things like that um, uh, were really important. Politics changed, governments, you know, in the Middle Ages, what do governments care about? They cared about social, they cared about administering law. Um, they cared about warfare. They had no interest in maintaining the basic health of the population. It wasn't something that these kings hundreds of years ago cared about. But by the time we had the 19th century, we had many countries were starting to become democracies. And there it was in your interest to, to look after the people so that they would vote for you. Um, much more benign governments, things like the in philosophical movements like the Enlightenment, politicians start to care about people, provide health, deal with sanitation um, and things like this, rather than just simply leading up, leading it to the free market. We had better housing, we had much better nutrition, famines became a thing of the past. So famines in, in um, Europe in the last 200 years um, don't happen because of lack of food. Uh, modern famines happen because of politicians. They happen in war, um, as an accidental consequence of war, or they happen as deliberate government policy where they choose to starve certain people. And as someone from Ukraine, you'll be somewhat topically, you'll know very well that um, Stalin in the Soviet Union deliberately starved the Ukrainian people in 1932 um, for political reasons. There was terrible sieges and things like this, like the Siege of Paris in 1870 or Leningrad in 1941. This is why um, pe people died. Um, so all these things, anyway, famine is, uh, we ha we've had enough food to feed our people, certainly in Europe for the last 200 years. And this has given us better bodies able to fight off disease, better cleanliness, housing free from vermin that spread disease. Um, so all these things have, have helped fight off infectious disease before medicine could do anything, really. Medicine could fix broken bones, but treatments like deliberately bleeding people or making them vomit or giving them laxatives, this is what doctors were doing for 2,000 years. And it was useless, if not downright harmful. So were these advances in medicine and technology, did they contribute to this shift from causes of death from acute causes to more chronic ones? Yes, absolutely. So this is, this is um, yeah. So the acute ones would be mostly infectious disease, but not just that. The world's a much safer place than it used to be. So deaths from accidents are uh, uh, much rarer than they used to be. Uh, well, the example I talked a lot about this is, is cars. So things didn't all get better in the 20th century. There were two 
terrible inventions in the 20th century, which led to a lot of people dying. Number one was the mass production of the cigarette. And the second one was the motor car. So in motor cars, you have one ton metal boxes moving around at high speed, causing um, accidents. And death on the road is uh, still perhaps the leading cause of death for young people, people um, in their 20s. So we still have, uh, but on the whole, these sudden deaths um, are, are very rare now, fortunately. So hundreds of years ago, however healthy you were, you knew there was a chance that you could pick up an infection and be dead a week or two later. Or even within 24 hours with something horrific like cholera. And this is gone. So now, as I said, you're absolutely right, chronic diseases. So I, I write about life expectancy as a sort of basic, if you want one measure of, of how healthy a country is, you can talk about life expectancy, and that is useful. But what it doesn't take into account is that you might still be alive, but what's your quality of life like? And what we're having now is people, they're, they're alive, but they're living for decades with in poor health. They might have something like diabetes, which could they could live with for 20 years, which um, or problems with breathing, COPD, caused by smoking, um, things like that. Uh, so this, these chronic diseases, you know, hypertension leading to stroke or um, heart disease. This, this is uh, this is what 90% of people um, are dying from these days. And, and dementia, as you know very well, Galena, as you work on this yourself, uh, dementia is uh, the rapidly growing um, cause of death uh as our life expectancy goes up and up and there's there's nothing we can do about it there's a nice concept called the health span rather than lifespan which is just you know birth till death no matter how long have you got health span is number of years you have where you're where you're in good health and maybe simply keeping people alive when they're in very poor health and have a terrible quality of life is wrong-headed to some extent we should be prolonging the health span and we all have to die. And it may be the best thing would be if it was sudden after many, many decades of excellent health and a high quality of life. So do you think there's still a bit of a stigma about um, sort of talking about death and maybe even making your, your will? Uh, I'm a scientist. I'm not a great expert on this, but... Uh, I'm sure you're right. Um, not writing wills can cause problems. I know that. Um, but because, as I said, because it tends to happen in a hospital or a hospice, with just the elderly, uh, or, you know, an intensive care unit, perhaps, we don't witness it. And it used to be something that happened all the time in the home. And it, it was a part it was a part of life you were living with had large families and you knew that sadly you were going to lose a fair number of them um, uh, at any age so this is why these days people rarely have more than two children because we fortunately we can be very very confident that they that they will live and if you had no confidence and the, the only social security when you're elderly and you needed somebody to look after you would be your children you had lots of them 
And as we have just gone through the global pandemic, um, the very personal questions or question on any, anybody's mind would be, so how did that change uh, uh, the way we die? Well, sort of uh, the many people in population die and uh, how can we, I suppose, prevent it or make this experience a little bit more humane? Um. When you, when you, do you mean talking about preventing epidemics in the future? Uh, yes, and also our response about yeah. how we treat dying during this time. Right, well, there are some lessons here. So first of all, um, I, I might have been given the impression that we can be complacent and we shouldn't. New infectious diseases is an absolute certainty. Um, evolution happens and DNA mutations keep acquiring in bacteria and viruses and occasionally it will turn into a form which will cause a disease. This is an absolute certainty. When I first started writing the book, actually, I, I, predict, I said this. I said, you know, we're sure to get new epidemics. And I wrote incorrectly, this is most likely to be a new strain of influenza. Uh, and it turned out to be coronavirus. Never mind. You shouldn't try and make predictions. You just make a, a fall of yourself very quickly. Um, anyway, I stand by <laughs> and I feel vindicated to some extent that um, new epidemics are absolute certainty. So there's 7 billion people on this planet and that's a massive potential food source from any kind of virus or bacterium that can, that can live on us. And the COVID-19 is just the most recent examples of that. We've had a lot of um, near misses, different strains of flu. Um, which may often come from chickens and we've slaughtered the chickens and rapidly developed vaccines and things like that uh, to fight them off. Uh, Ebola is another worry. Again, we've got another vaccine now, which is terrific. Um, but we can, we can learn some, some lessons from this to deal with uh, future epidemics. And I know the World Health Organization is looking closely at this. Uh, at the moment, or by the way, we deal with these inevitable new epidemics. Um, I think one thing it brings home to us is the value of international cooperation. So coronavirus doesn't care about um, imaginary lines um, on the ground which represent borders between countries. Uh, there's no point in eradicating a disease in one country if, if it's raging um, in your neighbours, um, the other side of a river. So we have to cooperate to um, deal with and eradicate disease. And first of all, uh, information is vital. We must have whistleblowers. If there are new epidemics suspected, um, we must blow the, um, blow the whistle straight away, raise the alarm, uh, uh, bringing measures to do with, uh, you know, the measures we've been doing, like can, can social isolation, stopping people moving around, trying to cut down the infection, and then analysing the, the, the virus or the bacterium, whatever it's doing it. And modern technology is fantastic. We could sequence the, uh, once we'd isolated the virus, we could sequence its DNA in, you know, just a couple of days we had it, and then we could start raising vaccines against it. 
and the whole world needs to be prepared for this kind of situation. We need to have teams ready to invent new vaccines and not just, I think we shouldn't be organizing these things on a national basis, that the vaccine should be sent to wherever in the world they needed the most to stamp down an epidemic because it will come to you if you don't do this. Um, so we need good governments that are um, all willing to cooperate and hold their hands up and say we've got a problem. And I think that's where that's a really important uh, lesson um, uh, from this. Oh, absolutely. And it's also brought home, as you said, about the way we die. It's also, you know, I think it's a reminder that infectious disease is always there and these things uh, will always happen. And yes, you know, we die of heart disease and cancer and things like that. But there could be a much, much more deadly uh, virus around the corner. Um, some things like influenza are so incredibly infectious and we have planes flying all over the world that can spread disease so quickly before we were able to even realize uh, there's a problem. And again, this is really ancient. So of course, the, 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 the worst infectious disease probably of all time, well, certainly historical period is the Black Death in the 14th century, which perhaps killed one in three people in Europe, may have been just as bad in, in places like uh, China, probably even worse in Central Asia, they don't have such good records. Um, people were absolutely helpless to deal with plague. Um, the, but it spread um, basically at walking pace. It took several years to get from um, Southern Europe to places like Norway. And then there was another wave of plague in um, the late 19th century. And again, with this spread all over the world, and this is spread by ship. So it, it, this started in Yunnan province in China, and it got to you know, South Africa and San Francisco and places like this. It was spread by ship. So that was much faster. But now we spread disease by plane. If there's somebody infected in Australia, they can bring it to Europe within uh, 24 hours. So this, this, is, this is the big problem um, in the modern world. We can devise uh, solutions, but, you know, the, the virus can, can, a new virus can spread uh, faster than we can, we can do this. So the, I think we need to be prepared to get organised and very ready for the next kind of outbreak. Uh, as I said, blow the whistle, crack down on it, spread as much as possible and put um, our best people into inventing and mass producing vaccines, which we, we know how to do, um, in, invent drugs and then take them to the source and, and crack down on it. And it doesn't matter where this is. I think those are the lessons. And as it's obvious from this uh, discussion that death is inevitable part of life. So I was wondering, is there a perfect way to die? Um, a perfect point. when you've done everything you wanted to do I don't know it's just that's a personal quite I have no expertise on these things um, I wouldn't want to you know prolonged pain to be avoided of course I wouldn't want it to be a surprise um, after a good life is all I can say when you've uh, done what you wanted to do and made the world a better place, hopefully.
And now thinking about uh, the bigger picture. So why is it important for us to study and to learn more about the ways we die for our society at, at large? It's the bigger picture. I thought we'd been pretty big already. But... <laughs> um, the big picture. Well, I think um, studying causes of death, well, this reflects the way we live. And I've kind of hinted about this already. So the, the ways we die now, the most common diseases um, are partly, I don't want to really blame people, but they are our fault to some extent. They're, well, they're due to the ways we, ways we live. So our modern society, um, it's hard to get the exercise we should. So we evolved to be hunter-gatherers where we were you know, engaged in physical activity all the time. And in the modern world, it's all too easy to go and sit in your car and then drive to your office and sit in your office and then drive home again and sit down and watch TV or something like that. And it's hard to stay in good shape. And it's hard to avoid eating ice cream because it tastes really good. And we are, so we are prone to um, hypertension, obesity, doing things we shouldn't do, smoking, alcohol. And so the ways we live uh, are reflected in, in, in the ways we die. Uh, for young people, you know, it is unusual that people die in their twenties and thirties, but and it's very shocking. Um, but if this does happen, uh, it happens through accidents, which is usually on the roads, which is the importance of road safety, which is incidentally is massively improved. Um, death rate on the roads per mile driven in the USA is only five percent of what it was. A um, hundred years ago, we were building much safer vehicles, and drivers are much better in road design, all that kind of thing. But so this this is accidents. We're much better at dealing with that. And the other th the other leading cause of death for young people is very sadly suicide, particularly in um, young men. And with so many young people um, attempting to take their lives. Um, we need to understand uh, why this happens and what, what's going wrong in society and what's happened in the lives of these people to put them in such an emotional state that they want to take their own lives. So, as I said, it's things like that, um, you know, simply looking at causes of death reflect what our society um, is like and things that we could do better. Oh, yes, for sure. And especially learning for from our uh, past successes, for example, uh, reducing the rate of infant mortality throughout ages. Oh, this is, this is another triumph is, um, yeah, we've already said, you know, in, you know, probably the Middle Ages, certainly ancient Rome, you probably didn't make it to the age of 20 or even the age of 10. Um, and the other big tragedy is um, number of women who used to die in childbirth. And again, now that sounds very rare and very shocking, but that was perhaps the number one cause of death uh, 500 years ago. Women might have 10, 20 pregnancies and every time they gave birth, um, it was a high risk activity. Um, and beating that has been an, an absolute triumph. Um, 
Would you like to know how we did that? <laughs> Should we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Okay, so one of the great inventions was forceps. Um, and this was invented by the Chamberlain family, who were French originally, they worked in London, and they invented forceps. So a very common, you know, one of the problems in childbirth is, is the baby gets stuck in the birth canal. And uh, one of my oldest child was born with a von Tooth, like a suction thing that will stuck on her head and, and help pull her out. Or we still use forceps, you know, the big spoon things that go in the baby's head and help pull it out, give the mother some assistance to get the baby out the birth canal. Um, and many women and babies used to die in childbirth or they were unable to, to deliver the baby uh, really, really tragically. Uh, so inventing forceps and bringing these on, this, this half death in childbirth. So just uh, that simple invention from hundreds of years ago uh, really helps. So what, what the, in the, the story is, though, the, I mentioned the Chamberlain family, as if they should be credited, they were a disgrace. They um, in, came up with this great invention and they kept it as a family secret for over 100 years to make money. So what would happen would be um, uh, uh, somebody from a rich family, um, the woman would be engaged in childbirth, um, uh, she'd be unable to deliver the baby, so they'd call out for the, the Chamberlain family to come along um, to, to help, and, and which they would do, and nobody knew how they did it. They would show up with a big a cart with an enormous box, as if there was a giant machine in there. They would go in, they wouldn't let anybody else in the room with the, with the mother who's trying to deliver. They would blindfold her so they couldn't see what was going on. They'd blow whistles and ring bells to disguise what was happening. Meanwhile, one of them would be delivering the baby with the forceps. Then out comes the baby, hand the baby to the mother, put all the kit away, whip off the blindfolds and uh, take the cash. Um, and this was their business for 100 years before the secret uh, leaked, leaked out. So if they'd pub published this idea of the forceps, many thousands of lives uh, could have been saved. Anyway, it did, it did come out, and we still use uh, these kind of techniques today. The, one of the, the second big reason why people died in childbirth was uh, picking up infections. So I've already criticised the medical uh, profession in the past. I'll do it again. So a few hundred years ago in Europe, um, we started to um, use maternity hospitals. So instead of a woman giving birth at home with the help of um, a, a midwife, they would go to maternity hospitals to receive the so-called best available uh, medical care. And these places were lethal. So what would happen would be that the midwives or doctors in the maternity hospitals, they would go from mother to mother and help deliver the baby. And they were, they did help deliver the baby, they did that. But in doing this, they would pass on infections um, to the mother. And this was clearly demonstrated in the Vienna General Hospital by a man called Ignaz Semmelweis. And he found that um, there were doctors being trained in this maternity hospital. They were doing autopsies. They were handling dead bodies with their bare hands. They would pick up germs on their hands. They would not wash their hands. And then they would go straight to a mother delivering baby and they were given the infection. Um, 
And these places were, were, were just deadly. There was like, you know, every time you went into the Vienna General Hospital, there was a, you know, there's a one in 10 chance that you, you would uh, die from picking up an infection, what they call childbed fever. And if you think women might be having, you know, 10 pregnancies, this was um, just, just horrendous. The Semmelweis uh, realised what was happening here and he forced the doctors to start washing their hands between going between patients. If they went in contact with anybody who might have a disease, wash their hands and then the death rate in child, from childbed fever plummeted. And then, um, again, this is one of the, um, again, it seems so simple and so um, obvious, but this is what we do with COVID-19 is we're always washing our hands, aren't we? stop the spread of disease and it was just not realized how important this was until you know nearly 200 years ago and this whole idea of cleanliness and the importance of washing and to stop spread disease is only a 19th century idea and it's a great idea and it's uh, enormously improved human health and cut down on the spread of infectious disease and it came from working on childbed fever oh and the other great in reason why child birth is not so dangerous is that um, anaesthetics, um, which meant that uh, a woman could survive a cesarean section. So if it was, so if it was really necessary to do a cesarean section, they, they did do cesarean sections thousands of years ago. Um, it, when the name comes from Julius Caesar, who was supposed to have been born this way, uh, but of course the mother would die. Um, but if you're absolutely desperate, um, and it's the death of the mother or the baby, then you, taking a knife to the belly of a woman without an anaesthetic to get the baby out was sometimes all that they could do. But with anaesthetics, again, 19th century invention, and antiseptics, the idea of stopping um, keep, you know, immense cleanliness and killing germs and things like that during an operation, and then the, the, the people would then survive cesarean sections. And this is how we dealt with death in childbirth. And, we, and these are illustrative. The, the whole points are, are immense value today. And we see this with COVID-19, but the importance of, um, you know, hand washing and, and, and things like that. And what kind of discoveries in your journey to writing your book, This Mortal Coil, surprised you the most? When I first started writing this, I thought it would be about the history of medicine. As you probably gathered, there was far less medicine in dealing with <laughs> our worst problems than, than I thought there would be. As I said, these solutions, we need good politicians that care about people, that, that we can deal with famine if politicians say, I've got a problem here, I need some help, we've got a food shortage. Um, we need... We need politicians and engineers to provide clean water, sewage systems and things like that, provide better housing for everybody to live in. Uh, trade is really important. Spreading of knowledge, sharing um, food. Again, again, so we're not all living on one, one, one or two crops. We can share things around. Um, so... A lot of the, a lot of what we need in the world, it's not. We're not waiting for science for a lot of, a lot of things. We, we're needing. We have the solutions to many things. We're just not implementing them. Uh, one, in, there are about twenty diseases which we should completely wipe out, and we haven't. And this is a failure of politics, and this is a failure of the way we live in the world today. So the only diseases that we've managed to completely eradicate 
Our number one is smallpox, and another one is a disease of cows called uh, rinderpest. So smallpox was an absolute horrific infectious disease, killed maybe 400 million people in the 19th century. And if you managed to survive it, you could have commonly blindness, lose extremities like lips, um, pockmarked skin was a sure sign of this. Um, and we, we had a brilliant vaccine. And with a worldwide campaign in the 1970s, uh, organized by the World Health Organization, we basically vaccinated everybody in the planet and eliminated smallpox. Fantastic. And it is a disgrace that nearly 50 years later, we have not done this again with any other human diseases. We could, there are many diseases for which they only live in humans. So you can't eliminate plague because the plague bacteria lives in rodents and we're not going to vaccinate every single mouse, right? But there are some diseases that are only in humans, like measles, like polio. And we have really effective vaccines for them. So if we could just vaccinate everybody in the planet against polio, measles, uh, rubella, mumps, and so on, we could eradicate many diseases. And it's, um, so we've got the science, we've had the science for decades and we just can't do it. So this is the main lesson I've learned is that, um, I mean, I am a scientist. I am trying to find, I am trying to find cures for Alzheimer's disease myself. Uh, but as like I said, a lot of, uh, we have the solutions and in, in many ways it's, it's political will or people refusing to be vaccinated or things like that is why we're not dealing with, um, disease the way we should and that's um that's the importance of that is that is what surprised me i think and if you could live for a very long time say for a couple of hundreds of years what kind of future would you like to see um, you mean for the world or what i'd like to do myself yourself maybe you want to travel to other planets for example or maybe you want to go back to nature <laughs> What I'd like to do myself, oh, I'd have, I would have um, multiple careers. Um, every 20, 30 years, I'd go back to university and I'd, I'd learn how to do something else. And I would, I think a university is a good place for me, but I would see if I can be a history professor. I'd see, I'd, I'd become a doctor. I would um, learn languages. I just do just every so often do something, restart, do something completely different. We make our choices when we're, you're kind of committed to a particular career when you're a teenager um, and you don't really have time to, to restart and do something completely different. Um, yeah, live in different countries, learn languages, experience different cultures, just uh, do lots of different things. That's why I do myself try to be good at sport, trying to be good at, at playing a musical instrument, trying to play, trying to learn languages. These things are really difficult, but I'd give them a, a, a decent go. Oh, love it. But I guess uh, me trying to learn guitar, I would not even, <laughs> a couple of hundred of years would not be enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I'm full of admiration for people who can are really good at things. Well, there's some things I tried really, really hard at for a long time, and I'm still rubbish. And guitar, piano, 
um, learning foreign languages and playing football fall into those categories. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Uh, well, I'm a professor at University of Manchester. I'm program director for biochemistry, so I'm involved with a lot of teaching, help run a program that has nearly 300 students. Um, as the research, I'm heavily involved now with a spin-out company from my lab called Pharmacure, and we're working on the same thing as you, Galena. We're working on diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, caused by proteins that uh, fall into the wrong shape, stick together and become toxic and cause disease. So I'm doing a lot with, with Pharmacure now, um, trying to invent drugs for these diseases like Alzheimer's, trying to find better ways to prevent them and uh, diagnose them. New projects, I guess you're wondering about another book. Um, I just have, I haven't started another book. Um, I said the first one, it took me many decades thinking about it to write the thing. And then I sat down and got it done in only three years. I was doing other stuff, of course. I have some vague ideas from another book, whether they'll come to other come to fruition. We'll have to wait and see. But I did enjoy writing it. Um, so I don't know. At the moment, I'm, I'm a bit busy, as I said, with, with Pharmacure and, um, and teaching and, and running and climbing and other stuff that I like to do. But um, I can see myself writing another book in a few years. And again, it would be, I'd make it very broad. What I, I don't like putting knowledge in boxes. I don't like saying, you know, I'm a biologist and I only know about biology and I'm only going to read about biology. And if it's not biology, I'm not interested because all these things blur together. So if you want to start, understand the disease, you have to go, go the way all the way from the causes, right at the molecular level, the germs, the organism, and then its impact on society, the countries that affect it, political factors involved with spreading the disease, historically what happened, how we dealt with it, all these things um, merge together. And that's the approach I like. And that's what you can, you know, in, in the book, that's what I've done. The combination of science, history, and so many all, all other things, because they all impact onto causes of death and why they've changed so much. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Um, so there's, I mean, if you just type my name into, into Google, you, if you type Andrew Doig Manchester, you find me, which is the advantage of having a weird surname. Um, and then you'll get to my university webpage with a bit about uh, research and teaching and, and things like that. Uh, information about the book, there's there's lots of reviews um, online. If you just type this morsel coil, Andrew Doig review, you can re find reviews from um, journals. And of course, things like Amazon. It's really nice to see what people think about it. And uh, readers have been sending me emails, which is just nice. And I've always been replying to those with uh, kind comments and questions. Um, so I, I'd like to hear from readers and see what people think. I'd never written anything like this before. It was a real learning process. I didn't know what I was doing. I would uh, 
read a chapter, try to get anybody, uh, sorry, write a chapter, try to get anybody who would read it um, to do so and give me feedback. And I think I learned how to write as I went along. Um, not write a textbook, tell stories about uh, how things happened. I think that, that's the way to go. So if anybody has feedback and suggestions and things like that, um, it's lovely to hear from people. The main criticism of the criticisms that I've had is, why didn't you write about this? Why didn't you write about that? Why did, why did you leave out? You didn't say much about tuberculosis. You didn't say much about HIV, but it's such a broad topic. What can you do? And I tried to choose things that were important and also representative. I didn't want to do one infectious disease after another that was cured by inventing vaccines or drugs. Um, I wanted to show how the whole idea of having a drug or a vaccine came about in the first place. But um, yeah, there's still, of course, there's loads more to do and maybe just end up in a book. And if people uh, want to get in, in touch with suggestions, things like that, I'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me, Galena. I really enjoyed talking to you too.